This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Good morning. It's just gone three minutes after seven. You're listening to Classic Business Breakfast with myself, nonetheless. But uh, Arabile is, let's put it this way, we've sent him out on an errand and he's going to be back Pretty soon he'll be joining us. You'll hear his voice in like the next 15, 20 minutes. But nonetheless, we'll, we'll kick off the show with uh, Chantal Marks, the portfolio manager at F&B Wealth and Investment. And we'll also catch up with Jamil Ahmed, who's the global head of currency strategy at FXTM. All eyes will be on Finance Minister T. Tumboini when he delivers his budget speech in the National Assembly tomorrow. And Craig Fifo, who's the chief investment strategist at Absa Stockbrokers and Portfolio Management, has likened Finance Minister Minister's um, budget presentation tomorrow to the great escape, much like uh, legendary Harry Houdini. So we'll find out exactly what he means by that. And South African Airways has released a statement denying reports that it'll be splitting into three separate entities. And this is after... um, media-led with reports uh, that the airline will be splitting. So we'll get comment from Professor Yanni Rousseau, who's the head of School of Economic and Business Sciences at WITS, basically trying to find out whether unbundling SAA would work. And then later on, we look at the Africa Energy Indaba as it kicks off. We'll talk to Brian Statham, who's the chairman of the South African National Energy Association, about why the energy Indaba matters for South Africa. All this and more is coming up. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Quick check-in on the market. Stocks in Asia traded higher this morning despite renewed geopolitical tensions, with China accusing the U.S. of fueling cybersecurity fears. Mainland Chinese markets gained in early trade with the Shanghai Composite rising about 0.6%, while the Shenzhen component added 0.9%. The Hang Seng Index also gained four-tenths of a percent. The Nikkei rose a tenth of a percent. And over on Wall Street side, the Dow Jones jumped 443 points to 25,883 as JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs outperformed. The S&P 500 gained 1.1% to close at 2,775, led by the energy and industrial sectors. The Nasdaq component advanced 0.6% to end the day at 7,000. 472. Over in Europe, the FTSE 100 and German DEX were both little changed, while the French CAC gained uh, 0.2%. The All Share gained uh, 1.1% to 55,260 points, and the top 40, 1.1% is the first close above 55,000 points for the All Share since November. Of course, those US numbers that I just quoted were the numbers from Friday. Yesterday, we had. Um, Washington Day. So uh, markets were closed on the U.S. front. But we'll talk all about that with our guests after this. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Six minutes after seven, joining me on the line is Jamil Ahmed, who's the Global Head of Currency Strategy at FXTM. And of course, we've got Chantal Marks, who is from F&B Wealth and Investment. Jamil, I'm going to start off with you. How did we kick off the busy trading week? Thank you very much for having me, as always, and good morning. Uh, so, yeah, things were actually a little bit quiet because of the U.S. Um, public holiday due to Washington's birthday, and also because markets are very much in wait-and-see mode for what's going on with these current and ongoing U.S. and China discussions, which has been a recurring 
about six months. But this is why investors are really staying and waiting and see. In terms of the South African round, that saw a little bit of weakness yesterday. I'm looking to see what happens tomorrow with the budget statement and also whether the round could benefit from the potential that the Federal Reserve FOMC minutes will put the brake on further interest rate rises and see whether this causes any dollar weakness. I mean, Trump tweeted uh, that US-China talks have been, and I quote in inverted commas, very productive. So we never really know how to read Trump's tweets. Is it a little bit too early to, I suppose, be celebrating at this stage? It's very much too early to be celebrating because this is an ongoing theme that's been going on for months. And if you look at these kind of comments that come in from the political parties, you have had positive comments at times, but yet we're only just over a week and a half away from when the United States is going to potentially put further tariffs on Chinese imports, which isn't going to be good news for anybody. So this is why I'd say it's still early, too early for celebrations. We really need some sort of long-standing resolution for improved risk appetite. And currencies like the South African Rand will sit on the sideline and not see that heavy buying demand until investors are clear as to what's going to happen next with these ongoing discussions between the United States and China. I'm looking at the rand now. It's 14.14 to the dollar. Since the start of the year, a lot's happened. I think whether it is the load shedding from the ESCOM front and various other news, how has the rand performed uh, since 2019 kicked off? Well, it's still up on the year, but the thing is, the last week was a particularly bad week for the South African rand, and because of that, the rand actually gave up most of its strength from January because at one point the South African run was the best performing emerging market currency this year which isn't anything that's very easy to achieve but yet this ESCOM news it was particularly poorly times because it came at the exact same moments that the dollar managed to strengthen and rebound. We saw a big 1.5% increase in dollar demand and then you've got this US-China no news is not necessarily situation to the trade discussions which has made investors very risk off so all in all the south african rand is still higher for the year but it's not anywhere near as strong as it was just one week ago it's lost about three percent since then Chantal, i'm going to bring you into the conversation on the local side how did the markets do well the market was actually quite buoyant yesterday but um not a lot of trade so volumes under a bit of pressure, um, probably as a result of the U.S. public holiday. So it's very difficult to actually uh, say whether or not mm. this this kind of buoyant JSC is sustainable. Uh, there is a lot of uncertainty in the system. So um, this could just be uh, temporary, but we'll take it. News yesterday, and you know, I found it quite funny that it had to come out the day I speak about it. So Friday, we had Gary Boyson in studio, and he made the comment that the CEO of EOH and the CEO of MTN should just get together over the weekend and have a beer and just talk about the problems they're facing both either on the MTN and EOH front, which was kind of ironic because you have the CEO of EOH who used to be at MTN, so he can relate as to uh, what the challenges are. And I also remarked on the letter, that the open letter that um, Stephen Van Collar wrote to stakeholders, which uh, was published on techcentral.co.za. And I barely leave Melrose Arch, and already there's an article about how now there was a report, well, somebody, you know, flagged uh, at the SEC uh, that there's some kind of dubious activity that may have happened between e- one of EOH's subsidiaries and the Department of Defense. Yeah, apparently um, some alleged uh, malfeasance mm-hmm. um, 
with the Department of Defense. And we know it's also very topical in South yeah. Africa at the moment. So it really doesn't look good for, for EOH. Um, they came out with a SENS announcement after this broke on Tech Central that the matter is subjudicate. So mm-hmm. they're not actually giving us any more information on this specific complaint to the SEC. They just said that they're continuing to, to engage with Microsoft on their concerns. And now, finally, we know why Microsoft canceled the mm-hmm. contract. We thought it was just uh, reputational damage from months of speculation around um, improprieties on EOH's part. But it seems to be related to something very specific. Yeah. And um, it seems to have come from the very top of Microsoft. Mm. Which is uh, quite, uh, I suppose, worrying. And then Adcock Ingram, uh, I think they gained about 2.5% because they announced that they've just gotten the contract to supply, I think, about 12% of ARVs uh, that state hospitals will purchase. And someone tweeted something that I found quite interesting and he said he wants to be happy but he doesn't he feels as though gone are the days we we would be happy when companies won state contracts. It's like he's kind of in between about how as uh, I think Adcock and Aspen both got the contract so it's split between the two. Yeah, Are I mean, you feeling the same? So, I mean, these contracts are quite above the board. Uh, the tender process is uh, very open, out in the open. Um, it's it's never been something that's been questioned. But now you're making me wonder. Um, I'm I'm just being tongue in, tongue in cheek here. I think that this is quite a very this is quite mm. a transparent process. So I wouldn't be too worried um, over the state um, ARV contract. Uh, what I will say though is very positive for Adcock yeah. Ingram. Um, I think that the the contract amounts to almost two billion rand over three years um so we estimate that they would have received about 200 million a year which is a total of 600 million over three years um over the last three years so this is quite a big improvement for them and one of the issues that adcock ingram has faced is that they've got massive manufacturing capability in south africa particularly in arvs but their factories are not running at full capacity so this will actually result in factory efficiencies economies of scale and even though these are low margin products um it could translate into into higher earnings for for them so a very big positive for them um aspen's more or less the same so at least it didn't fall (laughs) which is good jamil i'm going to come back to you news that you're going to be keeping an eye on uh, for the rest of the week. I know tomorrow is the big budget. You're going to be focused on that. But what else is in your radar? On a global level, it's going to be the U.S. FOMC minutes release from the Federal Reserve meeting last month. Reason being is because the markets are still very much in surprise and somewhat awed that the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, has issued such a U-turn over what they're indications will be for monetary policy and interest rates in the United States. So this saw a lot of dollar moves at the end of last month. So while investors are really looking for some clarity, some guidance, and some indications as to what the Federal Reserve will be doing this year, if they will not be raising U.S. interest rates at all, there's a possibility that emerging market currencies will benefit from this. Chantelle, I didn't ask you, um, news that caught your attention yesterday outside of EOH? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there was actually two trading updates or trading statements out after market close. Uh, we had both Grinrod and um, Supergroup releasing trading statements that on the face of it looked quite strong, um, which confused me because usually when companies release a trading statement after market close, it's quite poor. Um, but it seems as if both companies are recovering quite well. Um, also surprising because they're both kind of play in the logistics space where we know margins have been under pressure. So um, 
quite positive for those two companies. Um, and then we also had Anglo um, um, Amplatz and Impala Platinum out with, with numbers. Amplatz just with an updated trading statement saying that things are looking even better than they initially um, said it was looking. Um, and Amplatz also with a solid update in line with uh, previous guidance. All right, we still have uh, Chantal Marks in studio with us throughout the show. She's from F&B Wealth and Investment. And thank you so much to my guest on the line, Jamil Ahmed, who is the global head of currency strategy at FXTM. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. South African Airways released a statement denying reports that it will be splitting into three separate entities. This after news media led with reports that the airline will be splitting into three separate entities responsible for handling their domestic, regional and international flight routes. For more on this, we're joined on the line by Professor Yanni Rousseau, who is the head of School of Economics and Business Sciences at WITS. Prof, thank you so much for your time this morning. We had news over the past couple of weeks about the unbundling of ESCOM and then there was a possibility that SAA may you know split into three separate entities would this have been a a good move in order to be able to fix it and perhaps even create uh, an element or environment of transparency good morning Nastasia good morning to the listeners SAA has been in trouble for such a long time that it's difficult at this point in time to uh, decide what will help to resolve problems at SAA. I am in favor of just closing SAA, just giving it away. We no longer need SAA as a state-owned entity, but that is clearly not acceptable to the government. So yes, any strategy to turn SAA around must be investigated at this point in time. Right. So CEO Vianne Jahana, you know, he mentioned that they are negotiating with lenders to extend its 9.2 billion uh, rand in loans that mature in March. And they seem to be having some kind of uh, good conversations with the lenders. I suppose this is encouraging to an extent. It's encouraging that lenders uh, are prepared to talk to SAA again. For some period of time, it seemed as if lenders were not at all interested in SAA. And it is probably SAA's best option at the moment to split itself into three different entities so that we have, as you've said earlier, transparency to see where the losses are made and where uh, viable businesses still exist. Right. We're expecting Finance Minister Tito Mboweni to give it some clarity on further allocations to SAA in his budget uh, tomorrow. What are you expecting to hear, or rather what are you hoping comes out of that budget? Uh, in tomorrow's budget, I would want to see on which conditions further help would be given to SAA and other state and enterprises. I must stress, however, that the minister is not merely giving money to these institutions, the minister indeed has to tax South Africans to raise the funds to give to these SOEs such as SAA. And in my mind, I'm really convinced that we have better ways to use our money than to dump it in an SOE like uh, South African Airways that really has outlived usefulness. Prof, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Professor Yanni Rousseau, who's the head of School of Economics and Business at WITS.
every morning. Arabile Gomede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Well, here to save Tash again, uh, Arabile Gomede, back in studio, of course, as Tash has been going on about the market picture, of course. Tash, I did run that errand. I'm back. I'm all good and fresh and uh, everything's all right now. How did Man United do last night? Well, I can tell you right now, it was a, a great evening. Man United beating Chelsea. Let's not talk about that any further, <laughs> but uh, certainly did win. So that was a good one. Uh, just a quick set of earnings as well to have come out as well today. Anglo Gold Ashanti have, has come out with their uh, report for the six months and the year ended 31 December 2018. So it's their full year review as well there. Um, it, headline earnings per share increasing to 53 cents in 2018 and that's from six cents back in uh, 2017 so that's a massive one there free cash flow also improving to 67 million from just 1 million so it seems things are going better and they've possibly uh, you know just looking at headline numbers here performed a little bit better than some of the other uh, um, uh, gold companies as well so quite interesting to look at that net debt is down 17 percent to 1.66 billion uh, that's uh, from 2 billion in 2017 there too quickly kumba iron ore as well of course all the anglos are reporting uh in this week as well so uh we can take a look at some of those earnings too um headline earnings uh of 30 rand and 28 cents per share there so a good generation of cash strong cash generated as well from operations of 18 Point nine billion rand. So we'll unpack all of those earnings numbers as well a little bit later on with Chantal Marks. It's seven twenty though. Let's get into your traffic. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic Business Breakfast with MoneyWeb. The news of uh, Busasa voluntarily uh, deciding to liquidate their proceedings. And of course, the banks also giving up on them. Uh, the likes of APSA, the likes of NetBank as well there. So things are really culminating then and coming to a head uh, yesterday. Uh, those banks pulling out from them. So set to close indeed. What does this mean? Is this the right move? Was it the right move then for Busasa to actually liquidate uh, as a company? Faith Nguyenia is technical executive at the South African Institute of Professional Accountants. That CIPA joins us on the line, one of the many acronyms, of course, in the accounting fraternity. But nonetheless, Faith, thank you so much for your time. Um, let's, let's talk about whether you think this was the right move then by Busasa. Did they have no choice? Good morning, uh I, I, yes, it does look like they didn't have any other choices because they've already approached a couple of other financial institutions uh, trying to secure financial services. And uh, you'll understand if you do not have banking um, assets, you cannot do uh, business. You can't pay your creditors. You can't receive what's due to you because where will the people uh, deposit that? So it really does look like this was the, the dead end for, for the entity. And yeah. then instead of prolonging uh, the situation, now they've just applied for the um, voluntary liquidation. Mm. Uh, it, it sets a precedent then in the sense that, you know, if, if banks feel like one company is, you know, whether guilty or not, and, and, and I'm not saying in this case that Busasa isn't, but I'm just saying it sets a precedent that, you know, the banks kind of decide your future, so to speak. Um, I think it's more of a business case, because if you are doing business, you really do not want any kind of links that 
things are going to make you to be questioned. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, I think right now, uh, we have even a number, I mean, the opinion uh, of how they were saying they are going to revisit all the contracts that they have uh, with uh, the African Global Cooperation Group. Because nobody really wants to be associated with an entity that has got such serious allegations uh, against them. And uh, because then the reputational damage is not only for that entity, but it also spills down uh, to your own organization. So that is really the stance that the banks are taking. I think we remember with also the book uh companies that um, the banks decided that we are not going to continue to do business with them and that really just went south from there. So it, it is something that um, every business person will look into as to is this not going to cause reputational damage to me. Mm-hmm. And then I might end up losing my good clients just because of this one entity. Um, whether you do that while it's still allegations, because remember that so far uh, it has come through uh, the the commission, even though uh, 10 years ago uh, there, there were issues that were raised uh, with the NBA for, or, um, for investigation. Mm. But uh, I don't think there is a full investigation has been done yet. So that, that really is uh, something that one just needs to look at. Where do you then uh, draw the line uh, between just acting on mere allegations that are, might not be uh, founded or you wait until you have put concrete proof before you take such plastic accusations. That's something that the profession and the industry have to uh, really just debate and look at. Is it right to do, to do it at this stage or should you have concrete proof? Although actually, I mean, everyone is looking at this as a there is verifiable proof that came at that commission. Yeah. But the commission I'd like to ask then what happens in this case with regards to the auditors and the accountants of the company. Yes, it may not be listed, so it won't be under as much scrutiny, but it certainly is an entity that would have gotten its financials audited in some way or other uh, by one body or another. The question becomes, uh, what it, it, it puts the same industry that we've been talking about for for the last maybe year, year and a half, if not two years or so, uh, under great scrutiny, um, and it continues to do that, this doesn't bode well for the accounting industry as well because, you know, all these things sort of happened, you know, under its watch in some way or other, even though, you know, I, 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 I reasonably understand that it's not, it's not always a full assessment on every single detail. the balance of probabilities. If you find, if it can actually uh, be found that the auditing and accounting entities or companies that were uh, auditing uh, were negligent in what they were doing, then obviously it means uh, they they have a case to uh, to answer to. Um, what what we, we, we tend to do uh, in, account, in the accountancy uh, field is that we look at um, is this something that was blatantly uh, uh, there when you were doing your audit or when you were doing your accounting uh, services? 
would you have discovered and what did you do if you if it was something that was basically paid? So from the test that you actually conducted, did they reveal anything and you kind of can apply it to it? So that is really something that needs to now be looked into uh, in those companies that uh, it would have done business accountancy services accountancy and auditing and services for the group. So what was available, what was in the public domain, what did they do about it, did they raise any alarms, and uh, then also investigating uh, their reports. I think what happens with your private company is that sometimes uh, the accountants will actually pull out that, you know, there is something that is wrong. Mm. They will qualify your reports, but then because you are not accountable to anyone, you just don't publish that and nobody will ever know. Yeah. So one will then uh, need to, to just investigate if these were actually picked up at any point yeah. in the services that were rendered for uh, the, the, the company. So in a so, situation like this, very quickly, I only have uh, about 15 seconds. What, what happens to the existing contracts that Busasa has with government? Will those also be liquid now that they're liquidated? Of course, will those then be set aside? Will those be given to other people? Do you know if, if you know what happens to to that situation? Um, it, we still need to see what's going to happen with the subsidiaries of uh, the African and global group. So we don't know whether they're all. It's going to be the case, but a lot of those contracts are done through uh, subsidiaries. Uh, but what happens is you, you no longer have a, a, a service provider. So if the company is liquidated, there is no service provider. So it therefore will require that uh, the client look for new service providers. From the government, it's going to be difficult because the procurement yeah. services are quite long winded. Sure. So they would have to tread very carefully on that. Faith Nguyen, I appreciate your time this morning. Technical Executive at the South African Institute of Professional Accountants, that's CIPA, as we talk about Busasa's voluntary liquidation, of course, announcing that yesterday after the banks uh, had decided to close their accounts. It's 7.30, your news headlines. Every morning, Arabile Gumede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. So it seems that the telecoms bill has been withdrawn and the industry in itself has certainly put out uh, a firm word around this. The Electronic Communications Amendment Bill, the ECA bill, was created in order to implement some of the tenets of the National Integrated Information and Communication Technology Policy, uh, all of which was published in 2016 through amendments to the existing uh, Electronic Communications Act of 2005. Let's talk about what all of this means and whether this is even a good move that it has been withdrawn. Uh, let's chat now to Dobek Pato, who is Director of Business Development at Africa Analysis. Uh, Dobek, thank you so much for your time. Let's talk about what this means then. What does the withdrawal of this bill actually mean? Uh, and what was it actually, you know, what was the bill about? Good morning and yeah, thanks very much for hosting me. Good morning to the listeners. So what the bill aimed to do, the Electronic Communications Amendment Bill, is to introduce amendments to the existing Electronic Communications Act uh, from 2005 with uh, subsequent amendments as well. And effectively, it, uh, basically what it did is take a lot of ten, it took a lot of tenets or aspects of the existing act and uh, reformed them a bit and uh, aimed at moving along with um, implementation of different aspects that would allow 
the telecommunications market to become more efficient, more competitive. And uh, so on the one hand, on the other hand, it also aims to introduce uh, new institutions, uh, for instance, certain oversight committees at government level, and effectively start moving the uh, say center of decision making from a, a regulatory perspective in the market away from uh, the existing institutions, or in, particularly the electronic communications, um, sorry, the uh, Independent Communications Authority of South Africa, ICASA. Mm-hmm and more towards the government as a center of uh, of decision-making in the telecommunications sector. All of that is enshrined in the policy that you mentioned, uh, the National Integrated ICT Policy White Paper, and the Electronic Communications Amendment Bill, which was tabled in Parliament and now withdrawn, uh, was the, the first... Um, a legal step to start implementing elements of the policy and that was it was supposed to be followed uh, relatively shortly um, by a broadcasting bill which we have not seen yet yeah, uh, yeah. and that would address the broadcasting market and and that the ECA bill the amendment bill has been you know, that that whole uh, scene has been unfolding for the past at least about the past two years with the bill undergoing a number of iterations as it took stock of inputs from the industry from various stakeholders but mainly from the private sector larger telecommunications operators yeah don't uh, make it accommodate them if this was aimed as as well at creating a perhaps a little bit more of a competitive telecom space um would there still be some sort of communication onto how that bill can perhaps be then improved, how it can be bettered, how, you know, is there further conversation around that at the very least? And, you know, what elements of the bill then need to be changed in order for it to actually be able to pass? And clearly it wasn't going to do that before the May 8 elections. So, yeah, there are different theories why it may have been withdrawn, but I think in general there was, even after iterations and changes, there was still quite a bit of opposition to the to various elements of the bill uh, from private sector operators. Uh, not not all of them, uh, but uh, you know the different operators would uh, take different stances on different aspects of the bill. And also the uh, parliamentary portfolio on a committee on telecommunications and postal services issued a report which recommend well, effectively was recommending. Um, relook at the bill, very different aspects of it, and perhaps withdrawal of the bill. So the Department of Communications effectively preempted that process and withdrew the bill last week uh, out of its own accord. And uh, this provides an opportunity to effectively, I think, you know, re- rethink what we want to achieve in terms of competitiveness in the market. So there are elements of the bill that um, would have been quite useful, and that's revolved around um, the greater infrastructure sharing, um, allowing also greater flexibility in use of spectrum, frequency spe- uh, spectrum, effectively what wireless operators use to send signals uh, in terms of trading or sharing of that spectrum. Um, it also um, so it also looked at things such as reduction in, in bureaucracy and expediting obtaining various rights of way and permits to deploy infrastructure and to reduce unnecessary duplication of fixed infrastructure telecommunications infrastructure in the country. Uh, on the other hand, 
it heads uh, what was called a WOWEN, Wireless Open Access Network proposal, effectively a national operator, wholesale operator that would uh, build its own network out, uh, yet another wireless network, so duplicate infrastructure, but allow various licensed licensed service providers and telecommunications who, who cannot afford to build their own networks to operate on that network and compete with the larger operators. Mm. I think a lot of the elements that the bill proposed can be obtained uh, through other means. The same objective can be reached uh, probably at a you know, quicker and at a lower cost um, just on the basis of what's already enshrined in the existing Electronic Communications Act. It just needs to be implemented and regulations developed and, and uh, that would change the, or modify the market as we have it now. Uh, so the you know, various tenets of the bill may have been the, the, the long way and the expensive way of approaching uh, some of these yeah. um, potential developments. So I think what the department is going to do and needs to do are two things. One is take stock of what the operators have been still objecting to and see if that be modified, such as participation in the Warren or uh, competition uh, on, the, on the basis of um, spectrum and infrastructure in the market. Um, and also, I think importantly, to try and start realizing convergence between telecommunications and broadcasting. So before 2009-2010, uh, we were going in that direction. And then subsequently, uh, the government of Jacob Zuma effectively started diverging from that again created, recreated Department of Communications versus Department of Telecommunications and Postal Services. Um, it was thinking of creating a new regulator that would regulate the broadcasting sector specifically and apart from telecommunications. Currently, that's all unified under ICASA as a regulator. So effectively, the draw of this bill now provides us with an opportunity to start thinking about convergence again because that's where the technology and the markets are naturally evolving to. Uh, there are aspects of broadcasting that yeah. are merging with telecommunications in terms of how signal is and content is distributed and, and where do we source it from as users. I mean, we watch a lot of videos on the internet rather than on BSTV, for instance, nowadays, sure. the movies, yeah. and, and listen to music over the internet and so forth. So there, there is a convergence taking place, and we need to uh, develop future legislation and sure. subsequent regulation to yeah. take that into account and make sure that we are ready for the future rather than trying to diverge those paths. A message Um, that we keep trying to put forward indeed, that we need to indeed step up and actually be ready uh, as things progress. And we keep talking about that fourth industrial revolution as well, right? And and certainly aspects like this need to be a part of it. Dobek, we do appreciate your time as well this morning, Director of Business Development at Africa Analysis, chatting about the impact of the withdrawal of that telecoms uh, bill by Communications Minister Stella Ndabini Abrams as well. Uh, Perhaps we'll get another reiteration of it. Perhaps they'll continue to debate it further and Let's see what happens with that. 740 your traffic. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb.
At 7.43, Craig Pfeiffer, who's a chief investment strategist at ABSA Stockbrokers and Portfolio Management, has likened Finance Minister Tito Mbuweni's budget presentation that is due uh, tomorrow as the great escape, much like uh, legendary Harry Houdini. Now, Craig, you're on the line, and Houdini is known for escaping from handcuffs to buried caskets and I think large milk cans as well. How does the finance minister escape tomorrow? Yes, good morning, Natasha. I think Houdini was also, when he was in those things, he was also in a straitjacket and there was locks and chains and everything that were binding him up. And uh, that's kind of the, the view we've got of uh, Tito Mboweni tomorrow. Um, his, uh, his big escape is actually how does he manage to uh, accommodate the needs of Eskom, which uh, we think probably he needs about a 15 billion uh, rand bailout just in the short term. That's just to keep the lights on. Um, and then uh, he also has to balance that with trying to keep the budget deficit down, or at least not growing any more than it has. I think the um, ratings agencies, the markets, everybody's going to be watching what happens to that budget deficit number. And uh, we don't want to see it growing. If we look at our budget deficit to GDP, uh, it's grown over the last couple of budgets from uh, you know 2%, just over 2% of GDP, and the forecast for the next couple of years was 2%. That's grown to 3%. And in our medium-term budget policy statement last year in October, those all ballooned to 4%. So uh, that's kind of going in the opposite direction to fiscal consolidation and, and what the ratings agencies would like to see. So, uh, yes, the balancing act, the, the, uh, the great escape would be uh, if the minister can, can manage to accommodate ESKIM, those other state-owned enterprises, um, and then also not get that budget deficit to go up. And I suppose on the tax side, I mean, uh, the corporate income tax rate is at 28%, which I think is among the highest globally. So there's no room to increase possibly on that side. What other options does he have on the tax side if he does choose to go that route? Well, that's very much the straitjacket. As you said, there's no room to move on corporate tax, uh, personal income tax. I think we're also at that point where um, you know, you're getting to that uh, where if you put up any tax rates anymore, people will start thinking, is it really worthwhile working uh, or even worthwhile working in this country? Uh, so we, we, there's not much more room to squeeze on the, on the personal income tax side. And uh, that we saw, that has been a, a better boost for revenue over the last year. But uh, it's, you know, we're not going to see that rate go up again. So I think those three elements, um, that personal income tax, corporate income tax, they make up about 80% of the revenue, so little to be done on that side. But uh, where we can get some small tweaks and maybe some small gains, it's the usual sin taxes, those um, levies and excise duties, the fuel levy. Uh, I think those are all a given. Uh, it doesn't move the dial very much, but um, it, it, it helps a little bit. Um, and then I think what we don't know is whether they uh, have a look again at the inclusion rate for capital gains tax uh, or or you know, fiddle with the um, withholding tax, uh, uh, the, the dividend withholding tax rates. So maybe that's room where they've got a little bit uh, of, of room to maneuver. But at the end of the day, you also want to promote investment. And uh, I guess that's the real challenge here and why we've got all of these locks and chains and, and restrictions. So many of our listeners will be watching this on TV and then at the end of the budget delivery, the minister will probably get a round of applause. For guys like you who do what you do, how do you measure the minister's speech as a success or not? What are you looking at? 
Uh, I think for me, it will be about whether he can, uh, you know, sort out the Eskom problem, the short the Eskom problem in the short term, uh, without pushing out that budget deficit. Um, if the budget deficit gets any bigger than it than it uh, is uh, forecast to be, as it was in the medium term budget, um, I think that would be a, a bit of a failure. The credit ratings agencies, uh, I think, would take a dim view of that. So uh, I think the best prize, um, the best thing that we can hope for is that. We uh, we sort out Eskim, the short-term needs, that 15 billion, uh, without pushing up up the deficit. We can probably even get a little bit of a gain, uh, an improvement on this year's um, budget deficit or this past year's budget deficit, mostly because we've spent a little less. Um, but it's more about the future. So for me, the first thing I'm going to look at when I open up that uh, that budget note or, or start listening to the to the minister is where did the budget deficit go and have we sorted out Eskim? Craig, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Craig Pfeiffer, who is the Chief Investment Strategist at Absa Stockbrokers and Portfolio Management. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. So news out of planet Trump. Um, 16 states are suing him over the wall, you know, him declaring an emergency over the wall. 16 states, including New York and California and various others. I, I, I want to know for sure if Texas is suing him because uh, they're, the will... <laughs> they're the closest to the Mexican border. Uh, and it would be very interesting to see if they're actually going to... <laughs> yeah, it would be. So we've got Virginia, Oregon, uh, New Jersey, Minnesota, Michigan, Nevada, Nevada uh, Delaware. Okay. Um, not yet Texas. Yeah, but Texas is a red state, exactly. though. It is. Look, it is. But, you know, the fact that, you know, they're looking at it and going, yeah, but actually we don't need to have a war here. Like, this doesn't... I mean, anybody can see that you really don't need... A war. I can. I can attest to. Like, I, I guess I don't live in America, so I don't know. I, you know, it's a little perhaps unfair for me to be judgy. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, perception is more important than yeah. reality, right? And yeah. I think the perception on the ground, particularly in those red states on the border, are that they do have a problem. Um, the reality, though, from the statistics that we can find, uh, suggests differently. So I think also he has to deliver something. I mean, you made all those promises uh, during the election campaign about a concrete wall. Then it wasn't yeah. a concrete wall. It was a steel wall with the, the, the slacks. slacks. Uh, he has to give something, even if it's barbed wire, anything. Just and and you know, and as you say that, it's purely because this was actually his probably his biggest campaign promise, right? I mean, yes, there's stuff like lock her up, which he obviously didn't <laughs> achieve, um, but this is the biggest chant he had throughout that entire election process, the whole of 2016. This is all that mattered to him, and he still hasn't gotten it right. Two years later, my big question has always been. He's had two years in which the Republicans uh, controlled the House and the Senate. And he didn't pass anything through at that time, but decided to wait two years until he had lost the House of Representatives, now to the Democrats, with the Speaker being Nancy Pelosi, the leader of the Democrats. And now he's stuck between a rock and a hard place and has to have an emergency to to do it. just doesn't make sense. Can but I be I cheeky? I just saw there. something that made me laugh and it warrants being cheeky. Okay. So it's on Fin24. It's an article. T- uh, so as you know, Brian Malefe did an interview on ENC on Sunday morning. Mm. And the headline, 
reads, I'm in the dark over what went wrong at ESCOM. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> so I had to laugh at this because I was like... Yeah, so it doesn't make sense. So he doesn't know what actually happened, is, is basically what he's saying. He says he doesn't actually understand why he's been basically cast aside um, and, and was considered to be somebody who did wrong. I'm just like, wow. Perception of reality again. There's something going on here. <laughs> sure. None of it actually makes perfect sense. But very quickly, um, Chantal, let's also chat about those earnings very quickly. I don't know if you've gotten to take a look at Anglo Gold Ashanti. Doing a little better than some of the, the other gold miners we've seen of late. Yeah, but very much due to a very weak base. So mm. from a base effect perspective, um, earnings and headline earnings per share were impacted by a provision for the cost of the settlement of the silicosis class action claims and also related expenditure so legal expenditure Um, and then they also had a lower amortization charge for the south african business because they um they sold one of the businesses and they closed Mm. one of or they they placed one of the mines on care and maintenance so flattered a little bit by that um but still it looks quite good um in line with guidance and their previous trading statement headline earnings per share recovering quite strongly um, and then I looked at the all in sustaining cost number which is something that I find quite key and they actually managed to reduce all in sustaining cost by 7% to just $976 an ounce um, of gold which is very low on the cost curve so I think now at the moment this company is set up to do quite well going mm. forward and to generate um, free cash flow well beyond what they have been able to generate it, in the past. It seems like a sentiment though of the of perhaps a few miners in in the industry. I was chatting to the CEO of Anglo Platinum yesterday, that's uh, Chris Griffiths, and really talking about how they've been able to, you know, become a leaner and meaner machine. They've sort of brought down things. They've obviously done away with a few mines, particularly Union. Uh, they've brought in the, the likes of Morotolo and made sure that it was just theirs, and they made sure that they focus. And, and perhaps it's, it's a similar case with Kumba. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, Kumba is already very focused. So, uh, Kumba only has the the two major mines um, and they are able to uh, navigate a lot more efficiently between those two mines. And what we saw in this last period was actually also quite interesting. Um, They had an issue with their export line because of the truck that drove through the bridge, Um, but they still managed to, to bring up um, efficiency or improve efficiency sure. in their mines. They used some of the time that they had that they couldn't export to do maintenance on their mines mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to improve processes. Um, and that translated into a, a very strong earnings um, kind of update. Yeah. We saw headline earnings per share come in at 30 rand 28. Sure. Um, the market was, uh, it's more or less flat on the previous year and the market was actually looking for a 15% decline. Um, they mentioned that their product quality improved quite a bit um, okay. and the export price has also improved. So yeah. a good result also out of Kumba. Sure. Okay. Good set of earnings there as well. So a good set of numbers that we'll uh, continue to look at, of course, throughout the day. Very quickly, wanted to just touch on the Africa Energy in Daba as well, which kicks off. Why does it matter so much for South Africa? Brian Statham, the chairman of the South African National Energy Association, joins us on the line. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for the time. Of course, of late, we've had to discuss a lot about ESCOM's dramas, but this in Daba is also quite significant. And can and certainly paint a picture for the country. Uh, it's quite important, and thanks very much for giving us the time. We've got really uh, a number of themes that are, are quite critical. Uh, we've loosely categorized them as the four Ds 
and that's digitization, decarbonization, decentralization, and democratization. Now, what we're talking about here is through a number of panels, and the Minister of Energy, uh, the Honorable Minister Khadabi, will be here. He's going to open it, then he's holding a ministerial panel, and he's got we've got ministers from uh, Namibia, from Swaziland, from Nigeria, and we've got DGs from uh, Af- United Arab Emirates and from uh, Egypt all participating. And the key thing is to look at how we can use the modern energy systems that are now becoming available to unlock the energy potential that yeah. resides across the continent. So we'll be having discussions on the role of electric vehicles, energy storage, microgrids, and we'll be asking the question, should you take your business off the grid and be independent? What's going to be the impact of gas? And then the same way that things like Uber and Airbnb have disrupted the transport industry, the accommodation industry, so we're expecting that uh, the rise of energy traders could be equally disruptive for the traditional energy models. And all these things are critical for Africa because Mm. in the same way that Africa in the telephony area has leapfrogged and gone straight in and been a massive adopter of cell phone technology. So we expect that uh, Africans could do the same in the energy space mm. and use uh, solar, mini wind, micro hydro, etc. to um, democratize energy supply, allow people yeah. to actually manage their own energy supply and their own energy systems. And this is also very powerful in terms of getting energy out into rural communities and places like that. So yeah. it's a very exciting time. Brian, won't you just quickly space. give us uh, just very quickly details with regards to where the Indaba is, uh, how long it's going on for uh, as well? It's been held at the Santon Convention Center. Yeah. The main conference is today and tomorrow, uh, kicking off at 9 o'clock today. And then... Uh, Yesterday, there was a special forum on gas, but uh, on Thursday, there's going to be another side event on uh, independent power producers Mm. and power purchase agreements. Uh, And then there are parallel sessions. We've got about 60 CEOs who are going to be running a parallel session for uh, looking at the disruptive business models for themselves. It's a very exciting time. Brian Statham, appreciate your time. Thank you so much and good luck with the Indaba. Indeed, we'll check in on a chairman of the South African National Energy Association. Well, that brings us to an end of this show as well, the uh, Tuesday edition of Classic Business Breakfast on the 19th of February 2019. Tash, we'll do this again tomorrow. Goodbye. It's 8 o'clock.